Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am rejoined today by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, uh, fresh off her maternity leave. Uh, I can't believe how long she took, but she's back. And Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? It is so good to be back. I say that totally without irony. I've really missed you guys. I've really oh. missed our listeners. Um, it's It's really great to be here. Yay. Peter. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, succession actor Jeremy Strong was profiled in The New Yorker last week, uh, and his friends, including Jessica Chastain and Aaron Sorkin, are up in arms about it. Why? Well, turns out Strong's a little bit fussy as an actor. He's doing the method-like full immersion thing. Um, he's the sort of actor who likes to wear his character's costumes around town and breaks his feet sprinting down city streets in Tom Ford shoes. Uh, Strong is portrayed as a bit of a nut and also relatively sympathetically, frankly. Uh, this is a working class kid who grew up admiring Daniel Day-Lewis, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. Uh, he earned a scholarship to Yale and then he busted his ass getting minor parts in movies and for years until getting his big break on succession as the heir apparent to a Murdoch-like clan of media moguls. I don't watch the show, but Peter does. Maybe he'll give me, he'll he'll yell at me for not for not watching. Uh, he's the sort of guy who bugs the prop master for special things that will never be on screen. As one of the few off-the-record sources says, uh, it was almost swatting him away uh, like he was an annoying gnat. I had bigger things to deal with. Another off-the-record source criticized him uh, for spending a bunch of money to get Al Pacino to come to Yale for a semester. But uh, the meanest comment in the whole piece is probably the following. Some of Strong's acquaintances see his ability to attach himself like a remora to famous actors as part of his passion for the craft. Others see it as blatant networking. Um, and I would probably be annoyed if someone called one of you two a remora eel sucking off of me and my amazing talent. But <laughs> as far as these things go, it's not so bad. Uh, Jessica Chastain disagreed, saying, this profile that came out on him was incredibly one-sided. Snark sells, but maybe it's time we move beyond it. Uh, and Aaron Sorkin was annoyed that the only quotes used from him involved Strong trying to get tear gassed on set uh, and playing a kazoo during another actor's monologue. Um, as celebrities complained, journalists rallied around the profile proclaiming its greatness and fairness and saying that all the celebrities want are puff pieces forever and ever. Um, and that's true. That's of course true. That is what celebrities want. Uh, but you know, the truth, as always, is kind of somewhere in the middle. The profile undoubtedly painted Strong is a little bit silly and maybe, maybe even slightly meanly uh, did so, while also portraying him as human and interesting. It's just a good New Yorker profile, right, Peter? What do people want from writing like this? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that this is, you know, the, the people who have stepped in to defend Jeremy Strong against what they see as a negative profile have misread the profile in some sense, because I think that this is a portrait of somebody who is a little bit of an oddball pretty clearly in his, I mean, you, you just get that in the on the record quotes from the other actors who are like, man, this guy's process is weird. Like even when they're, they're being delicate about it, no one is like, hey, it seems totally normal to me. Right. Like the, the one right. quote from the, the showrunner, Jesse Armstrong is something like whatever it takes. It's such a, like a slightly bitchy British way of like not commenting, uh, but, but also like both standing by your actor and being like, yeah, there's some stuff going on here. Um, and I don't I don't see this as being a fundamentally critical profile. It is not a hit piece. It is a piece that explains that here is somebody who's doing something we're all watching. 
that we all find that many or many of us are watching that we find interesting. Very um, few of us are watching. For millions the and millions of people are watching this show. This is five percent of Americans not watching this show. But many okay, more people are watching this show than reading this profile. And so for New Yorker purposes, we're going to say lots of people are watching. It's enough. Which it has a big audience. Uh, the show has a the show has a good modest size audience. for HBO. Audience. It has it has a medium. It oh has come a on, modest, this, it has a very modest audience. Controversy. Sunny has, thinks a hit show isn't no, a hit show. It's a hit. It's a hit show on Twitter. People on Twitter love it, which is why this profile is such a big deal and why everyone's we, why it's been shared a million times. Because a lot of people always. On Twitter, you know what journalists love? Journalists love journalists. <laughs> journalists love TV shows about journalists, and they love reading about journalists complaining about how actors aren't nice enough to journalists. That's what journalists. Like. Clearly, we need to get Jane Coaston on here to explain whether Succession is a hit or not, since that was the it's, subject of her newsletter. But yes. Not a, not a hit. It's, it's just not a hit piece. It's an interesting piece about a process. And I think that the actors are just used to super controlled press, but also not used to the process of like taking material that people give you and shaping it, which is what you do when you write a feature. Yeah. And features are always about choices. And I said, but this is the actual bizarre thing here. And I actually, and I want to get Alyssa in on this, but um, the actual bizarre thing here was that Aaron Sorkin decided to do this. So Aaron Sorkin is a writer who lots of people find difficult, um, who lots of people find irritating and who does, uh, tells true stories in some cases, like in Molly's game in his movies. And when he tells true stories in those movies, he absolutely does. It's not just that he shapes them. He makes stuff up. Right. The, the the trial of the Chicago seven included a lot of details that were just made up or conflated, synthesized. Like he is he is in the business of retelling true stories in a way that is dramatic and interesting to serve his own particular ends in a way that I don't even think this you like is much more egregious and is much more sort of something that you could complain about than what this story did, which was, as far as I can tell, no one has disputed a single fact in this story. What they are saying is that the collection of facts does not tell the whole story. Well, when when Sorkin does this same thing for his features, he is making up facts, synthesizing things to try to get at what he would say is the real truth of the story, which is totally fine to be clear. But the fact that he doesn't understand that this is what journalists doing features, literally the most movie-like thing that journalists produce are doing themselves, selecting the 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 details that they think are are interesting is just sort of bizarre to me. Uh, Alyssa, what do what do you make of this? Because I, I, I we're all journalists here. Yep. We're all we're all writers. We love talking about writers and journalists. And I, I mean, I read it and I was like, this might be a little bit snarky, like Jessica Chastain says, but it's not. It's not a hit piece. Yeah, this it's is not, not. It's not cruel. It's not even critical. It doesn't suggest, for example, that Strong is not a terribly good actor or that, the, you know, all of this. Or that he's abusive on set. Yeah, just that he's odd. And I kind of love the reaction to this from Hollywood types because the combination of that reaction and the profile itself are not just a profile of Jeremy Strong, but they are a profile of the extent to which people in Hollywood are unable to step outside themselves and sort of see themselves from the outside, right? You know, the idea that something as comparatively mild as an investigation into what is like an objectively fairly intense, immersive process, the idea that that is somehow, you know, cruel or outrageous or strange is a reflection of people in Hollywood not understanding how they look to folks on the outside, not understanding the process, that their work process 
might need to be explained to other people, might look odd from the outside. Um, They don't necessarily understand that a world in which you're only hanging out with famous people all of the time is itself kind of strange. Um, They don't understand that, you know, the interactions between someone who is sort of newly famous after a long time of not being famous at all and still is not stratospherically famous is hanging out with all of these incredibly famous people is, you know, that that's an interesting look into the world that may seem totally banal to the folks reading at home. But I mean, even the little details about other actors in here, right? I mean, Daniel Day, it's got Daniel Day-Lewis literally starving himself to death on a set and Strong trying to like sneak him nuts so he won't expire. You know, there is the anecdote about Strong spending too much of the Yale Dramat's money to get Pacino to come to Yale is partially a story about how Jeremy Strong really admires Al Pacino, but there's also, it ends with an anecdote where Pacino walks off with this expensive silver drinking cup that's supposed to be, you know, um, it's supposed to stay at this restaurant, Maury's, that's sort of part of Yale's larger theatrical and music culture. And like, he just does this sort of ballsy entitled thing where he walks off with this very expensive object that he's patently not supposed to keep. And that's as much about Pacino as it is about Jeremy Strong, right? This is a profile about the fact that actors are weird and hypersensitive and don't have a lot of perspective on themselves. And then Strong's friends are reacting in a way that is weird and hypersensitive and completely unself-aware. I would yeah, say what, that what, it doesn't it doesn't say he's abusive, but it does make a case that at times his process is difficult and creates conflict on the set. And so it's got Kieran Culkin saying, it doesn't quite say his process is a problem for me, but he says, well, it sure doesn't help, right? Yeah. It's got him wasting the time of, a, of the prop department in one case, asking for a special family album to be made for him to like hold on to it, like have a, a memory of that's fake or something like that. Um, he says he won't rehearse with his yeah. other, with his colleagues, except to do like totally emotionless dry reads. I mean, he it does make a case that he is that he creates conflict on set and that the other people find him somewhat difficult to work with, which is interesting. At the same time, I think if you watch the show, and I don't know if you watch it, Alyssa, but it's a great show in part because of the conflict, the clear conflict between Jeremy Strong's both both his character and the actor and the other actors there who are like the I mean the the sort of the thesis of the profile is that he thinks he's in a drama and everybody else thinks they're in a comedy and the fact that this show manages to kind of limb those two states at all times and and exist in some sort of weird uh, gray zone between them is why this show is so genius and, and a big part of what it makes of what makes it work. And the the profile gives him space to argue, I think actually fairly quite convincingly, that the goal of onset harmony is not always sort of compatible with the production of great art. And that sometimes conflict is a useful part of creating the thing that you want to see on screen. And you know, it it doesn't take down that quote, it lets it stand alone. You know, he he has a lot of space to defend himself. It's it's manifestly fair, even if the ultimate result is one that makes him feel a little odd. I have two things that jumped out at me as a journalist reading this. Uh, the first is that the author seems to have known Jeremy Strong from school. Yeah. Um, which this is so this is my big my big thesis on the piece is that Jeremy Strong thought he was being interviewed for a puff piece by a friend 
in The New Yorker. And this is one of the reasons why he rushed to give him. Uh, there's a line in the piece about how he said he, you know, usually getting in touch with celebrities is going through a bunch of hoops dealing with publicists, whatever. But Jeremy Strong, just, he gave me all these guys numbers, which I think, again, is part of the dynamic here is that I think Strong feels he has been betrayed by a friend. Um, I'll put it that way. And that is part of the reaction to this. The other journalist thing that jumps out at me, and we, can, we I'll, I'll have you guys comment on that in a second, is that very specifically in the piece, it mentions that he doesn't want to talk about the gentleman on the record, which suggests to me that A, he talked about it off the record, but B, I'm curious why he didn't want to talk about that movie specifically on the record and why nobody who was in that movie commented in the piece except for Matthew McConaughey, who also starred with him in Serenity. So maybe that's not even a, a gentleman uh, it made me think of it made me think of Alyssa's point uh, about that movie, which is that Jeremy Strong is basically playing an anti-Semitic character in that film. Maybe he didn't really want to talk about that. But uh, what are your thoughts on like the fact that this guy knew Jeremy Strong for years before writing this piece? I think that is I think that's actually a little bit dicey. Yeah, I would have been curious to know more about that relationship. Just as if I was the assignment editor, I would have really pushed. Um, the writer on what that relationship had been like, especially as someone who, I mean, it's going to be the most pretentious thing I say on this podcast, but at least I know that Ooh. it's pretentious that I'm saying it. Knowing even slightly the sort of undergrad theater culture at Yale, as I do, which is very intense. And I mean, Yale has an astonishing drama school. It has a very strong undergraduate theater program. People who go there intending to do drama stuff are very ambitious and for good reason. A lot of them do end up pretty famous. Um, but given that they knew each other and given how weird Yale undergraduate culture can be, especially in sort of the drama extracurriculars, I would have maybe been a little nervous about assigning that profile without feeling like I had gotten a real and honest read on what that relationship had and maybe. Been. Maybe for the record, the editor did. Yeah, I mean, we may, don't. I mean, that that's entirely possible. And maybe I was and, just saying, yeah. as as a reader, it jumped out to me. Yeah, for sure. And it, I mean, it's the New Yorker doesn't do the sort of GQ or Vanity Fair thing where the journalist is a significant part of the piece. It doesn't do it often, right? It, you know, someone like Peter Hessler, who has done reporting from China that's at least in part based on his experiences as an American abroad there, might be a little bit more of a character. Um, you know, some sometimes you'll have the, the reporter sort of inserting themselves in a scene just so you understand that they've been there and get sort of a visceral sense of the details. But there is not so much that sense of the reporter as sort of ambiguous, tricky character in the modern iterations of The New Yorker. Um, I mean, you know, obviously we've all seen The French Dispatch and that gets at an era when the writers were sort of much more present in the pieces. But it would have been interesting, I think, to have a little bit more of some of that reporter as character here and like gotten a little bit more of Shulman as maybe an ambiguous sort of quicksilver figure and gotten some of that tension in there. I think it might have made for an even more interesting piece if in a different way than the one that we actually saw. The impression I got was just that the reporter was somebody who knew Jeremy Strong somewhat, but not in a close way, but had been sort of had encounters with him 
over the course of years. I mean, at one point he said, oh, Jeremy Strong taught me to use a copy machine at an early job or internship yeah. or something, right? It, but in a way that like- They're coworkers. That's, sure. That's, you know. But there are people who I was a coworker with for a few months, 15 years ago, who I would not say I am friends with, um, not because I dislike this person, just because we never actually interacted all that much. But maybe I have a funny story about interacting with that person. And, you know- and, Who do and, you hate that you only knew for a couple of months, Peter? Tell us now. There on the are people, podcast. you know, you you drift in and out of people's orbits in in life, and that's a and as a, a part of being a writer is remembering little bits and pieces about those people, and sometimes you come back to those people as subjects in your stories when they, for example, get a major role on a uh, a hit TV show that everyone is watching. Very few people are watching it. All right. Uh, so, what do we think? Is it a controversy? Or a controversy uh, that the New Yorker painted a portrait of Jeremy Strong that wasn't entirely flattering and to the approval of Jessica Chastain. Alyssa. Uh, it's a controversy, but Chastain and Sorkin's defenses of it are controversial because it makes them look silly. Peter. Yeah, I think the story itself is a controversy, but it is a controversy, a small one, but a, it is a controversy that there was the second wave of stories in which people thought this was a hit piece or somehow... Uh, not a legitimate piece of journalism, even though, like I said, no one has disputed a single fact in this story, as far as I can tell. And they're just saying uh, that the selection was wrong. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a controversy. Uh, but I do think this will make a wonderful segment in Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch Part 2 double issue. Uh, just imagine Jeremy Strong playing Jeremy Strong, oh. being profiled by Abner Bartleby. Uh, played by Luke Wilson. It's going to be amazing. I'm so I'm, uh, excited I'm already. already. I, no, no, I, no, no. I want Edward Norton to play Jeremy Strong. <laughs> I want, what if Edward Norton played Jeremy Strong and then Jeremy Strong played the writer interviewing See, there you Jeremy go. Strong? Yeah. Is, you have to add like so you, you gotta, a, an appropriate level of Wes Anderson meta-ness uh, <laughs> along with self-referentiality for yeah. this to work. All right. Uh, if you enjoy this show and who doesn't, look at that great little ad lib we just did uh please head over to atma.thebulwark.com uh, where we'll have a special bonus episode on our favorite steven spielberg collaborators speaking of senior spielbergo on to the main event west side story uh steven sondheim's classic romeo and juliet story set in the gentrifying new york city uh spielberg brings all his usual cinematic verve to his first big full-scale musical those of us who have seen and loved temple of doom which opens with a big musical number knew he had something like this in him we believed in him we believed in steven uh but it's not until now that he decided to make a full-on big song and dance movie uh, the story goes like this the jets are a gang of irish hoodlums headed by riff played by mike fast feist fast i don't know uh, he is tired of the encroachment on his turf by a gang of Puerto Rican toughs headed by Bernardo, played by David Alvarez. Bernardo's sister, Maria, played by Rachel Ziegler, falls in love with Tony, who's played by Ansel Elgort, a jet freshly released from prison after almost killing a guy during a rumble. Uh, there's another rumble in the offing. This one's spurred as much by Maria and Tony's burgeoning romance as the territorial disputes. Uh, the plot here isn't the attraction, of course, so much as the song and dance numbers or classics like Tonight Tonight and America, which will be instantly recognized recognizable to many. Even I, a confirmed musical skeptic, can hum along to America. Um, uh, and Steven Spielberg knows how to move a camera. He takes us through the streets of New York City in this great opening uh, sequence that just is is really, really well done. Uh, even with people dancing in the streets for no reason, I was like, this is very, this is very well 
put together. Uh, what's most interesting about this movie, at least from my perspective, is not the song and dance numbers. I don't really care about those. Uh, but the the fact that it's basically a tragedy, one that culminates in a rather straightforward retraction of the American ideal of the melting pot. Uh, here we have Anita, who's, who is played by Ariana DeBose. Uh, she sings about wanting to live in America and how much happier and freer and richer she is here. Um, but then her longtime boyfriend is murdered, and she is nearly raped by the aforementioned pack of Irish hooligans, after which she defiantly steps into a little halo of light designed by cinematographer Janice Kaminsky, uh, and defiantly states that she is Puerto Riquino. She is not an American. This is uh, very clear to her. Uh, when Maria, whose brother and lover have both been killed as part of an ethnic conflict, uh, says that she's been taught how to hate, I believe her. That's the takeaway from this movie. It is, in its own way, weirdly regressive. People should just stay apart from one another. Alyssa, I am unfamiliar with previous iterations of this story. Uh, having, an, as I have mentioned, a phobia for musicals, is there a darker edge to this than other previous versions? So I actually am not a huge West Side Story fan, and interestingly, neither is Stephen Sondheim, who is, has been fairly dismissive of... Um, a lot of the writing that he did for this show, even though it's become, a, you know, a substantial part of the American musical theater songbook. And the order of the songs and various details about the plot and who performs it have been sort of shuffled over time um, from adaptation to adaptation. Um, and I thought the ordering here was really strong, um, particularly moving cool slightly later in the production. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting watching this is that arguably Anita is the main character of the movie. And part of that is that Ariana DeBose is astonishingly good in this. Um, there's a lot of talk about Rachel Zengler as Maria, but I thought DeBose kind of ran off with the movie. And there are a lot of subtle little acting decisions that communicate sort of a level of contempt for Tony and Maria's kind of rashness and the love at first sight nature of their romance. Um, this is not entirely a an adaptation of West Side Story that asks you to suspend disbelief and believe that this is a love for all time. You know, there there is a strong argument to be made that this is still, despite Tony Kushner's scriptural um, interventions, not a great story about being Puerto Rican in America or even about being a downwardly mobile white person in America. But in this adaptation, at least, it is a pretty good movie about being young and about how foolish youth and the sense of youthful immortality are. I mean, in the lead up to Cool, after Riffs bought a gun and you see him and his friends essentially playing cowboys and Indians in the wreckage of slums that will become Lincoln Center, you just see how hopelessly young they are, right? You know, when... Maria, you know, in I Have a Love sort of compares what she had with Tony to what Anita had with Bernardo. You know, Anita's face is in the foreground for a lot of that scene. And you see just a certain amount of disgust in her face. Um, you see her sort of flinching away from Maria making this comparison. Um, and that to me was the, the most interesting and mature thing about the adaptation is that, you know, it's not necessarily, it's still a Romeo and Juliet story, but it's very much a story about the people who are kind of caught up in the the wreckage that Romeo and Juliet leave behind. Um, and I thought it was extremely effective. Maybe it's just that I'm watching it and I'm old. Uh, you know, I was younger when I saw the original cinematic West Side Story for the first time. Um, I'm grown up, I'm a parent, but 
that struck me as a really strong set of interventions. I mean, it yeah, makes I mean, sense I, that it would be about that it's a, a story about young people, given that it is based, you know, on on Romeo and Juliet, right? And that was sure that was a story about um, rival houses and all that, and sort of political, ethnic, cultural, right? Some sort of like divisions in society and the conflict, but also it was just a story about like what it's like to be young and in love yeah. and like in a. To, to hate what your parents have like just told you you can and can't do or what your society has told you you can and can't do because what you want is just to fall in love with a beautiful girl or the cool guy. Yeah, and I I mean, I, I, I do think this movie, I, I will say that I was surprised by how moved I was at the end, but also like kind of surprised again just by the actual tenor of that ending, which is not a... Uh, hey, we've all learned a lesson here. No, it's um, it's not it's not. Hey, we should all get along. It's like, uh, this sucks, and you suck, and uh, everything kind of is is shit. I mean, there's this movie has so many echoes of Munich, which is another Tony Kushner, Steven Spielberg uh, co-production in which, you know, but uh, that one, of course, was about the revenge operation that the Israeli government set in place after uh, the Palestinians uh, killed a bunch of Israeli athletes at the Olympics. And that movie is about the cycle of violence and about the ways in which people, in which it's very hard to break and people don't learn lessons. And it is a dark film, right? The ending image there in that in that movie is that after all of this has happened, the, the, we, we sort of pan out and we see uh, Manhattan from the southern end and it pans over over to the to the twin towers and it is very clear it is telling us that this is what was born out of this conflict and that it is it, we are still living in this cycle and that is a kushnerian spielbergian joint idea that i think they have really interestingly implanted or or heightened pulled out of it's not that it wasn't there before but it's much much more present in this version um it, you know, in, in West Side Story. And so, you know, thematically, I think this is just a really interesting movie. And of course, it's also, they have like taken that and, and made it not just specifically about white ethnic, you know, uh, street kids and Puerto Ricans. I think this is a story about American cultural conflict in, you know, the 2010, in the last 10 or 20 years and about the ways that it kind of seems intractable. Well, and I also think the addition of Valentina, who in the original West Side Story, the doc of, you know, Doc's Pharmacy, the drugstore, is, you know, the character who is sheltering and mentoring Tony and sort of keeping an eye on the Jets. And here, you know, by bringing in Rita Moreno, you have this character who's trying to bridge multiple worlds. And there is this sort of additional personal tragedy uh, at the end where Anita essentially – she tells her she's a traitor, that she, you know, cannot be a bridge, that there have to be sides. And, you know, the last we see of Valentina is, you know, she's walking Chino over to the police to surrender. Uh, she's holding the gun. And so, you know, there is to a certain extent sort of a subtextual argument like is Anita right? You know, what has Valentina gotten out of being this bridge – the project that she represents is kind of a failure yeah. at the end of the movie. Well, I mean, this is I, I think the movie totally takes Anita's side on this. I think Valentina represents again, I, I think this is the point that the film is making. This is not necessarily what I, what I agree with. But I think the, the, the argument the film is making is that Valentina's conception of life as a melting pot in this area where multiple cultures can everybody can get together and, and get along and, you know, people will just do the right thing is hopelessly outdated and outmoded. I mean, I think I think it's literally old fashioned and that's why they, you know, 
I mean, it's the previous generation's idea of how how life can be yeah. and work. And I, and I actually really like that this movie is kind of ideologically uncharacterizable. Um, I mean, one of the, like, G. Officer Krupke, the comic number with um, that a bunch of the Jets do when they're at the police station, you know, is kind of skeptical of the idea of um, sort of a larger social issue approach to crime. Um, it's skeptical of the idea of rehabilitation. It makes fun of a lot of these systems and kind of skewers liberal pieties really effectively. Um, and the the sh- the movie's sympathy for um, Officer Krupke is, you know, kind of an interesting note to choose at this particular moment. I know some conservative critics were a little surprised that that number stayed in, much less that Officer Krupke comes across as basically decent as he does in the movie. But I appreciate that. Yeah, Peter, you love this uh, movie. You keep you keep talking about how much you loved it on Twitter and in reviews, and and uh, so why don't you gush a little bit for us? Could you can you do some gushing? Yeah, so I mean, we, we've talked about the story and the ideological choices, and I think those are all interesting. Um, but to me, this is just an absolute triumph of sound and image, and yep. in, just in a sort of in in a pure popular cinema sense, there's just nobody who is better in my lifetime and maybe ever literally ever in Hollywood at combining sounds and images at moving the camera and at, in particular of staging set pieces that that have their own internal arcs and dramas right and so Steven Spielberg if you are if you're somebody who has been to the movies ever in your life if you're even aware of movies right i'm sure there's there is somebody who just has no idea what movies are in the united states but like you have some bit of spielbergian detritus lodged in your brain somewhere whether it is the uh you know the the foot stomp when the t-rex first approaches the jeep in jurassic park whether it is the you know uh, the bicycle flying across the moon in et whether it's you know bits of the truck chase in raiders of the lost ark or that you know that uh that um the giant boulder just sort of coming like i'm just coming up with this stuff because there are so many intensely memorable images in his filmography. He just has like the power to do cinematic iconography that is not cheesy and that is genuinely enduring and breathtaking in a way that I just, I don't think there's any other filmmaker who can compete. And he's not my favorite movie maker, but as I get older and as I see, uh, as I see more Spielberg, he has become one of my favorite filmmakers in part because of his capacity to simply render me, to take my breath away, like literally just like to make me go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just saw that. And so to me, the most powerful passages in this movie were not actually the bits where people were singing, but often just where they were dancing, often where the music was happening and there was no dialogue, uh, no singing at all. And so we get a couple of those sections that you talked about the opening bit uh, where the camera just sort of moves throughout this, you know, dilapidated uh, neighborhood that's being torn down. Um, There's also, you know, that uh, there's some dialogue in it, but there's that great bit where the camera comes into the gym at the beginning of the gym sequence. And it follows a group of people who are who are coming into the gym and there's already a bunch of dancers in there. And the camera, it's like a steady cam, I believe. And the camera then just sort of flies over the room as everyone is dancing, right? The cameraman clearly has been lifted up by a crane that you can't see and, and then gets off at the end. And that whole sequence is just 
incredible as a as a kind of sheer sensory experience. And then you get this like little dialogue bit, um, and this with some singing afterwards, where uh, where the two main characters, where Ansel Elgort um, and uh, Maria, are behind the bleachers, and there's a great little just cue at the end of that when they get interrupted and the lighting completely changes and you realize that they have been in a special lover's dreamland this whole time that is not quite the real world, but is this exaggerated cinematic version of it. And Spielberg handles that stuff with such a plum and such just deftness, right? Where it's like, it, it should be sort of over the top. It should be cheesy when you imagine that effect happening. It should be kind of like, oh, I see what you're doing. No, it's not. It's not, it never made me think, ugh. This is this is goofy. It always made me think that was so excellent. I just want to rewind and watch that little bit, watch that cut, watch that camera movement again. It was, and there just aren't many directors who can do that. It was really interesting seeing this the same week that you and I saw uh, The Matrix Resurrections, Peter. Because I don't know the, that we're allowed to talk about that yet. I should just all, say— All I'm saying uh, is, that, uh, is that— Before we go too far. Yeah, yeah. I, I will not say a word other than that I have seen it. Um, but— there were a couple of moments in West Side Story that reminded me of some of the visual effects that were so striking when The Matrix first came out, right? I mean, yeah. the moment when Tony and Maria see each other functions in a lot of ways like bullet time in The Matrix, where they slow down, the rest of the action is happening at the same speed around them. Um, you know, and the choreography in Cool, when you have, you know, when you have Riff and Tony like sort of bouncing off the walls the way that Trinity does at various points um, in The Matrix, and yet it feels not naturalistic, but suited to the environment that Spielberg and Kushner and all of their collaborators have created. You know, they have taken, and you know, a lot of credit here is due to the choreographer too, who has the unenviable task of coming in after Jerome Robbins created the iconic choreography for the original West Side Story and creating something entirely new. Um, but they, you know, they do, Spielberg does things that in another context would read as sort of showy special effects that here feel totally integrated with the emotional world of the story and that serve the human reactions and interactions incredibly well. And you know, I'm not sure I would have made that mental connection had we not, you know, sort of gone back to the Matrix universe this week. But it was just interesting to see what techniques like that look in Spielberg's hands in a very different context and to think about what that says about his his just cinematic power, his power as a director. Yeah. I, so I, yeah, I guess he, the thing that, that it reinforced to me uh, along those lines is that Spielberg has always been drawing from Broadway musicals. And I hadn't ever really thought of this, but for his action set pieces, and even in the kind of grittier and darker films, and even in stuff that doesn't feel particularly dancey, you can think of something like the car chase uh, sequence, the rocket pack at car chase sequence uh, in Minority Report, which is great, and just like a, a tight little bit uh, you know, uh, of action. But it's all... It's all mechanized sort of action and reaction and and physicality, right? And he just has this incredibly fine-tuned sense of of how stuff moves. And he can show you the important information, every single thing you need to see, right? And, well, this, and so you're always exactly with him and exactly – he has such control over your sense of, uh, of, of pacing and, and time and yeah. movement. He is a storyteller 
of movement. I mean, yeah. I, I remember there, there a couple a couple of months back, somebody tweeted out just like a diagram of a shot from Raiders of the Lost Ark that was Indiana Jones putting together a suitcase, just like throwing things in a suitcase. Yeah. And the the there was there like if you look at how the camera moves, there's a huge track. It's just going back and forth and back and forth. And this is a shot uh, or a scene that could have been done in multiple shots with just getting information. You know, you cut from here to here to here. And instead, he's telling this whole little story in the room and you, you're going back and forth and back and forth. And he does this over and over again. My favorite moment in the paper had nothing to do with with any of the drama, really, of of like the actual heart of the story. It's this moment that takes place in a in a house uh, as a little girl is running around selling Girl Scout cookies or something, selling selling something for school, and and you just go through the house again. This is another shot that could have just been done shot to shot, shot to shot, and instead Steven Spielberg thinks visually about it, and he puts it down, and he moves you through like you would be walking around and seeing everything. And it's just, like, again, I am not a musical guy, but I appreciate the lyrical and infused with movement way that he he does things and always has. What he does better than any other director is control the visual possibility space. So So many other action directors are just like, well, something else should happen. And then it happens. And even if it's kind of cool, it's like, well, where did that come from? With Spielberg, you're never ever, you're never confused about why something is happening because the first thing he always does in every one of his sequences is give you the lay of the land. And then he shows you all the little moving bits and pieces that you're about to see put into motion, into action together. And it's like this, like he gives you these quick little tours of things. And then he shows you how they work together. And, and it's just delightful because it's really clear information-driven storytelling that is like, here's the thing, you, here's the big picture. Here's the little thing you need to know. And now let's watch this play out. It's, it's a formula that he actually deploys pretty, like these shots are, they're complex and they're impressive in some ways, but they're not like, oh my goodness, this is some sort of stylistic, you know, sort of weird thing. No, it's just like, here is the best way to deliver this piece of information to the viewers so that they will understand what it is that I am trying to show them and tell them. And his, I always think of his, his shots as the visual equivalent of little sentences, because every one of these shots, even in a, in a musical where it's just about like, hey, they're dancing and because they're having some feelings. Every one of those shots is like a, it's like a, there's a, a caption attached to it that you don't need to see because you always know exactly what it's trying to say. And the, the extreme clarity, not just of the, of, of the movement, you know, sort of after a, a decade of, of like badly structured action scenes, the clarity of the meaning of every single one of his shots is just incredible, especially, you know, after he's been doing it for 50 years. Well, and it's, I mean, sort of in keeping with that, the opening sequence you've talked about, sort of the incredible tracking shot of New York and that, you know, that journey down the cable to the wrecking ball. But what happens after that is just as important because he's given you this, you know, gritty sort of damaged foundation and then slowly moves his characters into full-on sort of musical theater kind of dance. You initially have just a sense of rhythm, right, with the paint cans coming up out of the trap door, et cetera. And the way the characters walk starts out as sort of stylized and rhythmic and, you know, almost geometrical before moving into more obvious dance, per se. And so he, you know, he doesn't just start you with a big number where all of the characters are dancing already. He says, 
this is a you know something that is materially grounded that is grounded in a specific point in US history and there is this you know trajectory between ordinary human existence and heightened feeling and we're going to follow you up that roller coaster before we sort of send you down the other side into the full wave of sensation. It's amazingly done. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on West Side Story? Huge thumbs up. Big thumbs up. Uh, I will also give it a thumbs up. I didn't hate it. I liked it. I liked it a little bit, which means it's probably like one of the 10 greatest musicals of all time. I think that's fair to say. All right. That is it for today's show. Uh, Before we go, I would like to thank Chris Orr for sitting in for the last few weeks. Uh, For Alyssa, hopefully we can convince him to write a piece or two for us at the Bulwark. Uh, Maybe maybe he'll swing by again. You never never know. Uh, If you love this show, please make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on our favorite Spielberg contributors. Uh, And make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys again next week. Bye.